Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Well, hello. Thanks for being here. It is Monday, November 28th, and you just had a lovely Thanksgiving, I hope. I hope, I hope. Uh, most of the people I've talked to, uh, this was, maybe it's because we were all so separate for so long with COVID, but it seems that families really gathered together in uh, maybe greater numbers than they've been doing for a while. We hosted 13 people, and it was absolutely lovely. I hope your Thanksgiving week, weekend, long weekend, was wonderful. And again, thank you to those of you who had to work so that the rest of us could either stay safe and or shop or do all the things that we like to do with our lives. By the way, I saw on CNN this morning, uh, I guess people are not that worried about inflation on uh, the Friday, Black Friday after Thanksgiving. People spent over $9 billion, and I think that was only online. Um, they were reporting those statistics that came in. So um, it looks like people aren't too concerned about holiday spending. That's been one of the big question marks is, ooh, you know, you know, because the Republicans just want us all to know that inflation is, of course, the number one issue. Forget about abortion or crime or banning assault weapons. No, no, no. People care about inflation. Don't you know more than anything else in the whole world? (sighs) Well, you know what? Apparently not. So there. Good for us. Let's see. Lots of stuff to get to. So, Joan, why don't you jump right in? Uh, First of all, I want to say a quick note about RSV and flu and COVID. Uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci uh, was going to be making a public statement today. He's very concerned that RSV, which is that respiratory virus that particularly hits kids and babies, he is very concerned that um, we are going to have that spin out of control. He really wants people to be careful. And take precautions with their kids. Speaking of precautions, I hope you took your flu shot. I hope you've gotten the new bivalent, the new and improved bivalent. By the way, if you're 65 or older, there is a special flu shot for us. Uh, It's got extra goodness. And, you know, we know we may not be staying home. We may not be masking. But we do know that COVID is still present. Um, at the peak of the pandemic, more than 2,000 people were dying every day. We are not at that point, but the Centers for Disease Control say that more than 300 people are still dying every day on average from COVID. And here's the kicker. Nine out of 10 of the deaths are people 65 or older. So if you find yourself in that demographic, please, please, please get the new bivalent vaccine 
you know, some people have been saying, oh, well, you know, it doesn't it's not 95 percent effective the way the first ones were. I don't care if it's two percent effective. It is much more than that, of course. But even if it were only two percent effective, that's two percent of protection that I wouldn't have had without it. So please, please, please. And, you know, we do have flu season and people die every year from the flu, but COVID is still killing people at two to three times the rate that flu kills people. It's still the big fish. Um, Chicago and Cook County <clears throat> public health departments are saying that right now they are experiencing medium community level status. Um, there has been an uptick in COVID, so that moved us, I guess, from light to medium. And the um, winter season is just beginning. Please, please, please make an appointment right now. Even if it means you have to, you know, get on your computer and dial away from the radio station for a second, make your appointment right now to get the new bivalent and a flu shot while you're at it. I usually get them both at once, but I know a lot of people like to stretch it out. Okay, let's talk politics, shall we? In Washington, we are getting ready for the lame duck session in Congress, you know, where the Democrats still hold sway for however many more days until the new Congress is sworn in in January. One of their big priorities is voting on the debt ceiling, which, of course, Mitch McConnell and the Republicans have said they will not do. You know, when the Republicans are in power, they raise the debt ceiling Every time, every time now they don't, you know, it's the responsible thing to do to keep government going. But when it's the Democrats in power, suddenly the debt ceiling becomes this big boogeyman. And and it's another sign that we have to take this vote, another sign the economy's out of control. You know, they really are good at, (laughs) at messaging, even when their messages are exactly the opposite. We still say, oh, but Republicans say this. Oh, well, now they say that. Well, yeah, but they say that. Uh, Drives me crazy. So government uh, has enough money to go to December 16th. Mitch McConnell has said absolutely there won't be a single Republican vote to raise the debt ceiling. I guess they want Democrats to do it on their own so that they can point to it and say, oh, look, look, see, The Democrats are no good with the economy, even though even though it's not going to. No, it's just going to keep the government running. Uh, Other things that this lame duck session is going to try to get done. They're uh, going to try to protect same sex marriage. They're uh, going to try to vote on changes to the Electoral Count Act. That don't don't get excited. Don't think that means that anybody's doing away with the Electoral College. That's just a bill that shouldn't be necessary that says, oh, by the way, like like last January 6th, had this bill been in effect, it would have been just crystal clear. Oh, by the way, 
vice president can't overthrow an election. Just just saying vice president can't do it. What everybody in our entire history has assumed and acted upon now has to be written into law because, you know, if it isn't spelled out in law, you can't expect the Trump led maggots to follow it. So they're going to try to get a couple of things done. The Washington Post has uh, a little article on uh, Kevin McCarthy. You know, Kevin McCarthy, who desperately wants to be Speaker of the House and has been making phone calls and making promises to people for weeks and weeks now. The smart money says, yes, he will be elected Speaker. But the Washington Post is reporting. Remember I said it's going to be be careful what you wish for because he is promising so many people so many things. And the moderates who are uh, forming a what they call a Main Street caucus are determined that they are not going to let the very far right Freedom Caucus dictate terms and dictate agenda. So Kevin McCarthy is going to basically be trying to negotiate a peace between two warring factions, you know, the far right who see this as their chance to wreak havoc and the moderates who are taking a more strategic view and saying, you know what, that kind of chaos doesn't do us any good when we run for reelection. If we are the party of chaos, we are going to lose. And they said, we're not going to roll over. Ooh, Kevin McCarthy, you have got your hands full. So Washington Post is reporting that this is just part of what they know for sure that McCarthy has promised people. First of all, <clears throat> he's going to restore Marjorie Taylor Greene to her committee assignments. Marjorie Taylor Greene, such a reprehensible human being, said such horrible things and then refused to apologize for them that she was stripped of every committee assignment. She's going to be restored to all of her committee assignments. Don't you feel good about that? Um, he has promised that he will make sure that Adam Schiff is removed from his committees. Um, not just Adam Schiff, but uh, he's apparently promised other high-profile Democrats will be stripped of their committee assignments. If you don't have committee assignments in Congress, you have nothing to do. You have nothing to do. That's where the work of Congress gets done, is in committee. Uh, he has promised that he's going to remove the metal detectors that were installed to prevent people from bringing guns into the House chamber. Who the hell do you think wanted that? Oh, oh, sure, we'll get rid of those metal detectors. Uh, any uh, COVID-era protocols that allowed people to vote by proxy, he's going to do away with all that. You either show up or you don't vote. And um, since January 6th, there has been limited visitor access to the Capitol. Hmm, wonder why. Uh, he promises he, he's going to fully reopen the Capitol, fully reopen the Capitol. Anybody who wants to can come visit. No COVID-era voting by proxy. Get rid of those metal detectors 
Adam Schiff and Democrats, well, we're going to show them. We're going to strip them of their committees. Oh, but we're going to make sure Marjorie Taylor Greene gets all of hers back. Kevin McCarthy. Well, you know what? It's what he wanted. Now it's what he's got. Let's see what he does with it. We are going to take a break. There is more news to talk about. We will get to it right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. By the way, uh, there was no announcement made about this, but the, the National Press Corps has somebody staking out the January 6th committee every time they meet. Guess who showed up today? No, not Mike Pence. He already said he wasn't coming. Kellyanne Conway. With no announcement, no public statement, Kellyanne Conway showed up today and went into the chamber where the January 6th committee was meeting and the doors closed behind her. Hmm. Hmm. She wouldn't speak to uh, the reporter that was there. And uh, nobody from the committee has made any kind of announcement. So we will see. We will see if they say anything after the fact. In Hawaii, um, remember we told you that a few weeks ago um, there were signs that it looked like it might erupt, but it wasn't going to be like a right away, like in, within the next 24 hours. Well, it wasn't within the next 24 hours, but it did erupt. I'm not hearing of any uh, deaths. I think there was warning, but it's the first time it's happened in 38 years. Some other news, China has its hands full. People are protesting. They have had what, like a a zero tolerance COVID policy. Literally, you know, like one person gets sick and everybody goes into lockdown. And it's been that way for a long time. And people are starting to protest. There was a fire in a building, in a residential building. And I think when the fire was finally put out, 10 people were dead. And residents of the area said, I'm not quite sure how to connect these dots, but the people who live there said that the firefighters were hampered getting to the scene because of all of the lockdowns. And that seems, that fire seems to have been the straw that triggered these protests. China's got their hands full. Also, in international news, the, um, what is it called again, Paul? The World Cup? That's Uh, correct, the World Cup. World Cup. Yeah, I'm not a big, I know they don't call it soccer either, do they? Football? Definitely football. Football? Football. F-U-T, football. Yep. Um... And Iran has been behaving very badly. Paul and I were talking about this earlier, and I was telling him that I read this morning, you know, um, it got worldwide attention when the Iran team took the field a few days ago and the uh, national anthem played and none of the players sang. And that was uh, assumed to be a sign of solidarity with the protests that have been going on in Iran. Well, news leaked out today 
that the Iranian government has been threatening the families of those players and made sure the players knew that their families were at risk. So if they decide not to sing again, there will be consequences. And what was it you were saying about Iran, Paul? So I was kind of hearing about how... You know, the, the Iranian, um, you know, soccer, whoever's in charge of them, wants the United States kicked out of the World Cup. And, and it's over. Why did, what did we do? I, something with social media where I guess uh, displaying the the um, national flag of Iran, it didn't have the emblem of the Islamic Republic, just the the colors. And I think it was um, U.S. soccer told CNN on Sunday that it wanted to change the official flag for 24 hours to show support for the women in Iran fighting for basic human rights. And, and that's, why, that's why they want the United States banned for, for being in, in solidarity with that. Boy, a couple, if you put all that together with the fact that uh, Qatar has been not only, I mean, they're, they're not a country that accepts uh, gay anything, gay rights, gay anything. And even I've seen video of people, if you have um, one woman tried to get in the stadium and she had on a hat uh, with rainbow colors. If you show rainbow colors in any form, they make you change clothes or not enter the stadium. I mean, this is, I don't follow um, this sport, but it seems like this competition has become more political than I can recall any world competition in a long time. What do you think, Paul? That's true. And this also comes on the heels of the Winter Olympics that were held in Beijing, China. You know, so two places known for human rights violations and they're hosting the world's biggest stage. And and even with FIFA, the organization that, you know, holds these these events, these World Cups, the for soccer you know, they're full of corruption as well. And allegedly there was a lot of bribes, you know, that took place in order for Qatar to land the World Cup at this time around. Um, you know, so th- this you know, already in a year where these events are supposed to be peaceful times for countries to come together and enjoy sport. And in the meanwhile, there's all of this hand wringing. And, well, how can we truly enjoy this when there's a lot of corruption going on behind the scenes? You know, and then and there's even you know the migrant workers that came in to build all these stadiums in Qatar. How you know they they were treated poorly, and there's there's even been hundreds of deaths reported. But the the state is trying to clear that up by saying that some of those were projects that were outside of what Qatar is overseeing for the World Cup. You know, just residual projects that you know because the infrastructure had to change completely to host this giant event. All of the construction that was going on over the last nine or ten years, just you know, in, incredible conditions where it's so so hot. You know, during that, and they're forcing these migrant workers basically almost slavery to uh, to do these ja- these jobs and these tasks. You know, I assume that a country wants to host something like this because you want to show your country off and you want to raise your profile and you want people to know that you belong on the world stage. But it it doesn't seem at least not from the perspective of the reporting that I'm seeing in the United States, it doesn't seem to be working out for them. Do you think, um, you know, the, on the world stage, most of the stuff we're upset about, you know, uh, gay rights and what's going on with Iran, do, do most countries just not care about that? Are they getting what they wanted 
or not? Uh, well, I think as long as they're getting their money, I, at, at the same time, I don't know how it's going to play out with the the beer sponsorship. I'm, I'm sure you heard about two days before the event started, Qatar pulled out of their their deal with Budweiser that had been set for years, agreeing to sell alcohol within the stadium. And just two days before the event started, they said they weren't going to do that at all. And And, and I would think that that's that's going to be a lot of money in a lawsuit that's going to have to be ironed out. So I, I, I think, you know, if they're, if they're willing to make a, a risk or a, a bet like that on themselves, um, I don't think they do care about, you know, I think it's, it's, it's all noise to them because as long as, you know, and this is the part where a person like me is guilty, just the confliction of, uh, you know, the, um, I want to watch the event. I want to enjoy the, the football in front of me, but at the same time, all of this is going on. You know all of the all of the things that we had to deal with to to have this event be held right now. It, it puts me in an awkward position of you know how can I truly enjoy this? And I think I'm still giving them numbers though. I'm still tuning in, and I think the sponsors are happy, the money's rolling in, and Qatar's happy, and Saudi Arabia will try and do the same thing in eight years. Uh, all right, <laughs> exactly, and that's that's how I feel too, Joe. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. Thanks for uh, bringing me up to speed on that. No problem. But hey, tomorrow the U.S. could uh, win in advance to the knockout round. So go U.S. versus Iran tomorrow. Now they play tomorrow or they would they They, would qualify tomorrow. They would play tomorrow. They play Iran and the winner of that match will get to the, the next phase. I'm I'm so confused. So they play Iran today? Tomorrow. Tomorrow. So tomorrow. One o'clock. Yeah. Tomorrow at one o'clock. You can see that I've got this, these facts at my fingertips right here. All right. Well, um, keep an eye on that. And if anything exciting happens, text me while I'm on the air, okay? All right. Will do. Thanks. Uh, one last quick note uh, calendar-wise. For those of you who live downtown or uh, have a, a, a dog in this hunt, Mayor Lightfoot and Bollies are going to have a public hearing on the temporary casino planned for Medina Temple. That hearing open to the public is going to be 6 o'clock tomorrow night at the Voco Hotel. 6 o'clock tomorrow night at the Voco Hotel. That's 350 West Wolf. Um, uh, and they are, it's uh, supposed to be a public presentation about the temporary casino at Medina Temple. Crane's Chicago business uh, somewhat uh, sarcastically reported that the last time that one of these public hearings was held, that uh, Bali's and uh, the mayor seemed very reluctant to share the microphone with anybody like, you know, the public. So whether it will be a, a true exchange of ideas, whether there will be public comment allowed or whether it's just going to be, hey, here's what we're going to do. See ya. Bye. I guess we'll find out after the fact. We are going to take a break. We are going to focus on a couple of mayoral candidates today. We're going to start when we come right back with Dr. Willie Wilson. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. February 28th. Do you have it marked on your calendar? If you live in the city of Chicago, it is when you are going to go to the polls. You're going to be voting on alders. You're going to be voting on the race for mayor. One of those candidates, Dr. Willie Wilson, joins us now to talk about his effort to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. Dr. Wilson, thank you for being here. Hey, thank you for having us. Appreciate it very much. 
So uh, there's so much to talk about. Um, you gave recently, you had another one of your big giveaways, groceries and gas. Um, what are you trying? What is the reason for doing that? Is it political? Is it just philanthropic? What's your motivation there? Well, if you look back uh, 1996 on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, we were giving away those kind of dolls back in those days. Uh, we were giving away dolls and, and still do. Washington, D.C., New Orleans. We just came from New Orleans on Hurricane Ida and gave away a million bucks down there for people that didn't have, you know, a home to live in. We went to, you know, California, Washington, Rome, Africa, Israel, all those type of places we've been given since then. And I, I just, I'm not running for political in, in those particular cities. And then even with the gasoline and the food giveaway in Chicago area by itself, we give it away, we Hammond, Indiana, Gary, Indiana, Franklin Park, uh, you name it, and in Chicago, and we've been including with each citizen. Uh, for me to give political wise would be a would be dishonest and a disgrace to me if I did that. Uh, it would be unfair to the citizens of Chicago. Um, how would you describe your politics? I mean, some people say that. Um, well, the mayor has out and out accused Paul Vallis of being a Republican. You are also a very conservative candidate. How do you describe your politics? Well, I, I'm not Republican. I'm not Democrat. I'm for the people. Uh, I, I'm not looking for a paycheck. Uh, whatever the mayor make, I'll give it away to the citizen. I, I've been all one way, been one with uh, compassion. You know, I'm being consistent and caring. I've, I've never taken any money from anybody. I never used the taxpayer dollars. Uh, I say, look at my record. It's out there on social media. Um, I've been giving around the world. Uh, and then Chicago is a place where is that I decided to get into politics to help better this city, like with all the crime going on and taxes is high and people are getting kickbacks and People is is, is setting up the tax seven seven committee, uh, uh, and and trying to you know make people give them money and for kickback. Uh, I, I don't I don't want it. I want to see Chicago come together, and I'm gonna get out here and do my part because Chicago been very good to me. <clears throat> I said just judge me on my record. You know, I, I that's all I care to run on is my record. I I, I have, you know. Uh, African American, white, Latina, Asian American, all of them. And, and when we give away everything, that's why we give away in all communities, not just one community. And that's why we also give away around the country, you know. Mm-hmm. Alderman uh, Raymond Lopez dropped out of the race recently. He said that the reason he got into the race is because he didn't think Lori Lightfoot was a very good mayor. He wanted to see uh, her replaced. And but he was worried that the field was becoming so large that it would necessitate a runoff and essentially give her an edge. Since with the incumbency, you know, one of the people in the runoff is likely to be her. How do you feel about that? I'm not for sure that she's gonna make it. I mean, she she turned in a date. We didn't look and see what she turned in. She only turned in uh, 
about 38,000 uh, votes. And she said 41,000, but I'm getting is 38,000. Only 30% of those is uh, coming in good, 30, 33%. If that, um, I got in six to 1,000 votes less than two weeks myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I think she has. You got sixty one thousand signatures in under two weeks. Ninety eight percent of them in less than two weeks. Huh. Yes, I I think that's interesting because Ashia Kapos in Illinois Playbook was reporting this morning that a lot of the candidates, whether it's because of COVID and people just being uh, changed, but a lot of candidates were finding it more difficult to get signatures this time around than previously, but you didn't experience that. Not at all. I, I actually hmm. could have got them all one weekend, but I, I we just went to two. We we had no problem at all uh, getting them at all. In fact, I, I did them in two weeks, but I just got a few as they continued to come in, but we got 98% of those in two weeks. Dr. Wilson, there's lots of ways to take care of your community and give back. Um, you're obviously, you have an incredibly high profile. Everybody knows who you are. You're very wealthy and comfortable. What is it about elected office? I mean, you've run for president. You've run for Senate. Um, you've run for mayor at least twice previously. What is it about elected office that draws you? Well, Abraham Lincoln ran 21 times before he won president of the United States. He was a good president. You know, you 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 only win if you continue, and you only lose if you decide to stop. But why? Uh, what motivates you? Why is this? Why is elected office something that's important to you? Uh, because I could I could reach out. I could help a lot of people, and and I, we could help bring people more together. We can help keep our businesses in Chicago. We can help get these these uh, taxes down by by lowering these taxes. We can help bring people more together to talk and communicate. We can support our police officers with common sense. We can take the handcuffs off the police officer and put them on a truck. You know, uh, we, we, we can do a lot of things to help the city that have been good to me. And, and so... Those are the reasons, some, just some of the reasons that we want to make sure we put our contribution here because my success in terms of financially and in basic development, people knowing people that have come out of Chicago, it, it's been good to me. And I just won't sit, sit around and do nothing. I don't care about playing golf or nothing. But but if Chicago got a need, I have to be here. That's why we, we, we donate so much dollars not only to Chicago around the country to help people, those who have been fortunate and blessed enough to do so, uh, to, to help people, put the right people in. Don't worry about no kickback and uh, 7-7 committed, no PAC. Use my own money so I'm only uh, uh, responsible for the uh, community itself. Uh, again, I'm not Republican. I'm not Democrat. I'm for the people. And, but I voted for a Republican. I voted for Democrat. And but the, the, the situation is that Liberary Party situation is that it ain't about the party. It's about the people. I think the party they got the city messed up right now. You know, I I think we got to concentrate on stopping people from yeah uh, getting killed. These kids, three years old and six years old, and 
Then you're still going to live in a $3 a week for food allowance. You know, property taxes is high. People leaving out the city. And the people that live in the city, shopping over in, 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 in Indiana, in the suburban, uh, and people got getting carjacked and then got out of control. It, it's just like uh, Billy the Kid and Jesse James days in Chicago right now, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Wilson, we need to take a break. I want to I want to talk to you more in depth about some of your ideas, some of the programs you would like to um, implement if and or when yeah. you become the mayor of Chicago. I'm speaking with Dr. Willie Wilson, candidate for mayor of the city of Chicago. We'll be back right after this. Local and progressive on WCPT 820. Well, Paul Shivari back at the studio and I didn't realize that that spot was going to play. So I guess this is all Willie Wilson all the time on WCPT. Uh, uh, Dr. Wilson, we did not do that to flatter you that it just came up in the rotation. Um, but oh, it, it, I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take it. A <laughs> um, couple of the things that you mentioned when you talked about what you want to do as mayor is you said you wanted to give if, and correct me if I'm saying this wrong, that you wanted to give cops um, a more of a free hand. What did what did you mean by that? If I if I understood what you were saying. Well, look. The, the police officer handcuffs right now. They, they, you know, they, 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 the laws that they have, they, they, they're too afraid to even to arrest somebody uh, because they uh, look at that they're going to get arrested. Uh, for example, if a person commit a crime right in front of a police officer to somebody else and take them, rob them or something, that police officer not allowed to run behind and chase them and catch them. Well, that don't make sense to me, you know. So you're talking so, about the so revised it, foot pursuit um, rules that were that have been put into place, and there's also it, been revised uh, rules about uh, car chases as well. I know that that's yeah. one of the reasons why people have talked about how we need to either get more. Uh, cameras on the entrance and exit ramps of the expressway, or maybe even drones to follow cars. Because I know that the fear is that in a police chase, somebody who doesn't see what's happening will um, get killed It's as it's happened before. So I do understand what you're talking about in some of these, uh, the policies on how some of these things are conducted have changed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, we're, this is Chicago. We, we, we uh, have right now like the crime capital of the United States, which is crazy. You know, yeah, I mean, like, look, we, we, if, if, if we work together and, and we can solve the problem together, if we work separate, we, then it's difficult for us to try to, to solve a particular problem. The crime is not only in just the poor area, but it's downtown and rich area, middle-class area. And a lot of them is, is, is just used in plain common sense, you know. A lot, a lot of the problems are the same thing. Every community uh, uh, hate crime. Every community hate these high real estate taxes. Every community hate these red light cameras. Get rid of them jokers. They're looking at the contract, but get rid of them, you know. And, and so, so, you know, so so we have a lot of common interests into these communities that they're all the same. 
But the failure to, uh, of, of what done happened is that we haven't made them part of the city uh, administration as mayor office or have not in, did what I call inclusion uh, to, to talk with one another and work things out together versus working separate, you know. And, mm-hmm. and, and so we got to stop looking at the color of people's skin and things of that nature and and, and, and look at us all that as citizens try to bring us together. If anybody knows the difference between right and wrong in terms of, of from, from the background, I'm from the Jim Crow days. I've been through all of that. And and I didn't come out bitter. We I come out more or less just stick this thing together, you know, and, 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 and let's focus on that. But focus on the, the, the good that we can get working on together. Those things that we can't work out right now, then we'll work them out later on, but you keep keep going at it. The, 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 the neighborhood, a lot of these neighborhoods, if you can put the empowerment within these communities by setting up the infrastructure to help those disadvantaged community, then you can have a better city of Chicago. Well, like what kind of infrastructure are you talking about? Well, in order to in order to take the infrastructure, let's say for example, I would, it would let's just take schools for a moment. Okay. Um, I, I, I would put that each person that before you can graduate from first to second grade or ninth to tenth grade or finish high school or college, that you would have to have at least one particular trade that you can have under your belt without just a, a Education today, you need education, but you need a trade with it also, in order to build things. Now you begin to take the people in, in those schools, those disadvantaged communities, empower them because they can get out, and they they got a trade and able to get a good job in, in mm-hmm. order to get contracts and things of that nature. So you would build up on 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 on, on those foundation. Now you've also taken a step further. You would take something like that you have control of. So if somebody wanted to be a mechanic, for example, why not put a trade school right in the CTA while they, they, they build those buses, those engines, and service them and everything? Put young ladies, young men who want to make more money to do that. Why don't you take and work with the, 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 the union in terms of apprenticeship to take and train these disadvantaged people that, can't afford to get to school or trade and let train them so when they can get out, they can get good job and they can raise family because minimum wages don't do it because minimum wages, you can't even pay for a health insurance, you know? So, so those are the kind of things we do like that. The CHA housing, you, you can, you know, people how to do landscaping, put tiles, lay uh, brick layers and things of that nature. Those what I call putting infrastructure in place with what you have. It don't cost any extra money, but you know. So let's let's create that along with school and then those disadvantaged community can then become whole community and then you you're gonna be better off that way. But let's team up with our business people, these mm-hmm. major corporations who has the experience, who know how to do it, with partnership with them and get them on board to help fix this city. Dr. Wilson, um, I know that over the years you have changed your stance on on gay marriage. And I think 
a while back, you told the Sun-Times that you were reaching out and you wanted to learn more about the LGBTQ community because you hadn't really learned a lot about that growing up. Uh, were you able to reach out? And what, if anything, do you feel in the interim you've learned about the gay community? Well, we're all human beings. Now, I, I believe Laura Lightfoot is gay, right? Yes. I endorse her, if you recall. Yes. And you took her around to black churches um, when she was yeah. campaigning. Yeah, I took a lot of a lot of heat from that, too. But but we we did it. They're, they're human beings. I have no problem with I have an orchestra. I have gay and lesbian people uh, in my orchestra that work for me. I have I have a mirror. I don't have no problem with that. You're a human being. But I you have to look beyond that. I'm still looking at look, if you're gay, you got problems when when this thing happened back here a week ago that <clears throat> people took and got killed. I I put condolences on my website, you know. Mm-hmm. We, we cannot allow for because of, you know, wh- who you are, where you come from, and uh, to um, to allow that to poison our minds. We all human beings, and we have to keep moving on. I, I, look, I, I'm 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 a human being. I mean, back in the Jim Crow days, they figured that look look that we didn't have a right to vote. In fact, I'm the first person in my family, my generation of family, have ever cast a vote. Wow. Down south, yeah, down south, it was wrong. That's why I, I fought this thing, the lawsuit against the Board of Election. And, and and nobody, never in my family have voted in their life. I'm the first person that in my generation because we weren't allowed to vote down south. You know? So for so somebody to discriminate against me, I'm not going to turn around and discriminate against anybody. I don't have a right to do that. Dr. Wilson, as you said, you ran against Lori Lightfoot, and then you ended up endorsing her and helping her campaign. So you came around to supporting her. Why have you decided to challenge her now? Because the city is in such a bad shape. Crime, taxes, morale, um, and not communicating with its citizens. Um, I've never seen nobody or no mayor or heard of any mayor who can't get along with even the city council uh, and the people in the community or the, particularly the police officer, the first responder, that people that protect us. I've never seen such things in my life, you know, and, and I don't want to see this city continue down this, down this road. And then mm-hmm. so if I can get up and do something about it, then I would do this. She's been unfaithful. She have not told the, the truth. She's talking about bringing in the light, like she got this uh, 7-7 committed, this pack. People use it work for her on a committee and taking money from those particular people. That's wrong, you know? And that's why the, 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 the voter turnout been so low because people don't have confidence in, in their politician, people they elected office, you know? You gotta, mm-hmm. you gotta do something. You close down the poll, uh, uh, out here during the time of the election. You know, well, look, if it's been down in Georgia, you, you've been trying, you know, foul play, but you close them down when we should be opening them up more, or we should have waited until after the election before we close them down. You know, 
This, this lady is, um, I, I just, I don't know what else to say than that. I mean, I, it's just the mess that set it up, and I'm going to try to get in there and, and, and just straighten it out without receiving a paycheck. Give my paycheck to the churches and the community. I, I don't want a paycheck. Use my expertise in terms of business-wise and where I come from, and to help make this a better place. And not Chicago is my home. Mm-hmm. And 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 uh, I'm going to fight to keep it for for all citizens and generation to come. You know, uh, Raphael Warnock, the senator, was asked recently um, if he's um, a senator who's also a pastor, and he said, "No, you've got it backwards. I'm a pastor who happens to be a senator. I know that religion has played a huge role in your life." How will that affect you as mayor of Chicago? What what will your religion bring to the table? Well, my religion has not uh, stopped me from having a, a, a national or international business around the world. You know, I, same thing. I got common sense. If 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 if, if, if you, I have a nutrition, but if you give a witness a Muslim. That that's your own religion. I, 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 you know, we just happen to serve a different denomination, but we still have to take and um, get along with with, with, with with everybody. And my religion has nothing to do with uh, um, buying food or giving away things or changing, help trying to change laws and things of that nature. Uh, my religion is personal. And I will keep it, always keep it personal. Um, we have just a couple of minutes left. I want to give you a chance uh, to share with our listeners any important thoughts or information about you that you want to make sure they take away from our interview today. Well, I would say keep up with me on Facebook, Willie Wilson Facebook, and you can learn a lot there. You can Google me up and find a lot of stuff way back because everything that I'm saying is uh, and a lot of stuff I forgot, too. Don't you also have a campaign website? Yes, elect com. Yeah, uh, you can go there as well. Uh, It's so much stuff on the Internet. Everything you can't believe, uh, you know, people put so much stuff up there that I don't even know about. (laughs) You know, I... (laughs) But, you know, so that's the Internet for you. So, uh, you know, look at it and see it any, anyway. But you certainly see me in person out there doing things in the community that's good. And I'll say to Chicago that, look, uh, I'm a person that you can trust. I'm a person who, who compassion, consistent, and caring. Um, and, and I don't want any money from anybody. And I will not take the abuse. Uh, the taxpayer dollars. Uh, I want them to know that uh, it's not about that. It's about me trying to help uh, the citizen itself and help the generation that are to come and, and, to, and to have compassion, consistent, and caring for everybody without race, creed, or color, uh, and to be able to, to meet with all of the citizens, 77 community in Chicago, and we've pretty much done that, and we will continue to do so. Uh, you get me free of charge. <laughs> um, do you, uh, in the next few days, uh, is there any public uh, speech 
or any location where you're going to be out meeting people that we could let people know about? Uh, in fact, yes, uh, we have um, uh, we have a roundtable discussion with a lot of young people December the 12th, uh, and then we have for the veteran. Uh, I think that's coming up at uh, Marciana. That's on December the 9th at 11 o'clock. And I think there's about 340 veterans there. We help them celebrate in Trisma. And there'll be a round table there as well. And a lot of veterans don't have nobody represent represent them at City Hall. And they'll get a chance to ask them questions too. And the, uh, the dinner and everything is on me. And this one here is not coming from my foundation. It's coming from my my business. It comes with me personally, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for um, being here and talking about your candidacy. I'm sure we'll get you on again before uh, Election Day rolls around, February 28th, for those of you keeping score. Dr. Willie Wilson will be on your ballot. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. We are going to take a break for news. We're going to be back with more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. I am very happy uh, to welcome reporter Brett Murphy to our program. He is with ProPublica, and he did an investigation into a new trend that um, is making some trials a lot less fair, and it has to do with 911 calls. Imagine that you're in an emergency and you call 911. Could what you say and the way you say it later be used against you in court? It's happened. Brett joins us now to talk more about his reporting. Brett, thank you for being here. Hi, Joan. Thanks for having me. Okay, that was a very, very broad brush talking about your investigation. So let's back up a little bit and talk to me about this, the 911 call analysis and um, what you discovered when you were looking into this. Sure. So it's a training program uh, that was developed chiefly by a former deputy chief in Ohio, and it's predicated on some research he first did uh, as a master's uh, thesis. And basically, uh, the the discipline centers around the idea that there are um, something called the guilty indicators in someone's phone call uh, to 911. These are indicators that he had identified that uh, can be used to predict a caller's actual involvement in a case. Uh, it became it became a training program uh, not only for for law enforcement, for police and detectives, but also for prosecutors and coroners. And the story we wrote about was how uh, that training program had an impact on the case of Jessica Logan. Jessica Logan uh, is a young mother from Illinois, from Decatur, Illinois. Uh, in 2019, she called 911 just after 3 a.m. Uh, when her baby, her youngest son, Jaden, stopped breathing. So what we did in the story was kind of track uh, how the lead detective first came across this training program and then how he used it during the investigation and then the different ways in which 
uh, it sort of informed or influenced uh, different parts of both the investigation, the prosecution, and ultimately uh, Jessica Logan's conviction. How long was the training, and what did it supposedly teach him? So it's a two-day training course. That's sort of the full battery. It's a basic and advanced class. Uh, the lead detective had taken it. Uh, it's taxpayer-funded. Uh, it was being hosted by uh, a local uh, training commission, a, a group uh, in southern Illinois and or in central Illinois, and basically uh, it teaches you these, these indicators. For instance, uh, if there are um, isolated uh, use of the word please, or if the word just is used in the wrong place, if a caller is too polite, if they start the phone call with the word hi, for example, uh, if they provide something called extraneous information, uh, that can be another indicator of guilt. Um, sometimes uh, uh, another one, like in, like in Logan's case, was uh, she had accepted uh, Jaden had died, and she said this because she said, I think he's gone at, at, at one point. Another one is um, another one that, that was taught in his training is a lack of a direct or explicit plea for help. And in this case, in Jessica's case, she had said, um, I need my baby instead of I need help for my baby. So these little semantics, um, these, these omissions, turns of phrases, all of these, um, according to the training, can be construed as, as indicators of guilt. And that's what the detective learned, and that's how he used it in, in Logan's case. And tell me how Logan's case progressed. So at first, um, he was the lead detective was assigned the case on October 9th, and he, he used the analysis that very same day. So it was one of the first things, if not the first thing he did on the case, was listen to the call and apply the analysis. Right after that, uh, throughout the case, uh, her, her emotions were heavily scrutinized. Logan's emotions, whether or not they were sincere, uh, were mentioned in various police reports by, by uh, child services investigators who had talked to the lead detectives. It came up again at trial. It was in the arrest affidavit. Local media also had criticized her for not being emotional enough during the trial. So kind of throughout the case, uh, according to the records I looked at, uh, it was sort of played this central role. And in fact, the lead detective wrote to the founder of the training program right after uh, Logan was convicted and told her as much, you know, he said uh, in an email, you know, it was a huge benefit to to both the investigation and and the trial as well. So it, it really played a crucial part. And what was what was sort of at at stake here? What was at debate were these two narratives. One was from from Jessica and her family, which was she woke up in the middle of the night to give Jaden breathing treatment, and he wasn't breathing. Uh, the police and the prosecutors said no. She had she had smothered him, and then called nine one one with a manufactured story about the breathing treatment. So our story was really going through the case. Uh, identifying the different pieces of evidence. And our reporting showed that there were problems with several of the pieces of evidence, including the 911 call analysis, as well as uh, the pathologist's testimony about the autopsy. We found that, according to three outside pathologists we talked to, that there was no 
there was no reason to determine this as a smothering case where it should have been undetermined, like so many others cases, similar cases around the country. So that's what our story was really about. Okay, if you could find this out, why didn't the people bringing this to trial find this out? I mean, I'm assuming you didn't have um, some sort of uh, special clearance to find out information that wasn't available to anybody else in the world. You know, that's a, that's a good question, Joan. It, it was all public record. You know, the story is all based on public record. And and it was something we asked that we never um, got a lot of answers to where we're both to the, you know, to the police department, to the prosecutor's office, to those local agencies that hosted the training. You know, what steps did you take to avail yourself uh, to information about this training program? And what I mean by that, what information I'm referring to there is the battery of studies that have attempted to replicate the original findings upon which the training is predicated. And those studies have all found that they could not replicate uh, those findings. They did not find that there was a correlation between the guilty indicators I was telling you about before and the 911 caller's actual guilt. That would be, you know, scientific basis. So in a nutshell, using this training program is scientifically baseless. So the question was, you know, what did you do um, as agencies to to avail yourself of that information? And we never really got a super satisfying um, answer to it, but it was sort of like the marshalling or galvanizing question we had throughout the reporting. Is there any scientific basis to this kind of analysis? Because I've got to tell you a couple of things. Um, I've got a book that I read um, many years ago, and it was written by somebody who used to work for FBI and CIA, and they developed a conversational style that nine times out of ten if somebody did something wrong, he could get them to admit it. But it wasn't. In the book, they say all the things that you think you know, you know, like, oh, people say, well, you know, they glanced to the left before they answered. And, you know, they um, they looked down, they looked up, they looked left, they looked right. And he said, none of that is real. None of that is meaningful. Um, and here's these are the techniques. If you want somebody to tell the truth, this is what we found that works. But it's more of like a, a way you talk to people, not a tick or whether they're holding their hands or whether they sweat or whether they don't. I mean, it just seems it just seems absurd. I mean, do you believe that there is some real science here? So there was one of the first questions in the reporting was, you know, around this very question. First, uh, on its premise, you know, on its face, uh, could this be done? Can you can you quantify or measure uh, guilty indicators? Are there such indicators? If they do exist, how good are people at reading them? How good are police at reading these indicators? Uh, the verbal cues, nonverbal cues. Uh, deception detection. These were these were questions we went to uh, psychologists with, experts who have been studying these exact questions in the field for a long time. And it turns out it's it's a very tricky business. Um, it's a bit like as you were saying, it's very difficult to do. A lot of the cues that um, popular culture has taught us to to conflate with deception are in fact usually wrong, or they go in the opposite direction. Uh, so uh, those experts I talked to had 
a lot of problems with the premise of this. And then the, the studies themselves, um, like I was saying before, there have been people who set out academics and government researchers who have set out to test the guilty indicators I was telling you about before. They, they tested them blindly against other samples of 911 calls, say, hey, does this, you know, does it add up to these, to these indicators uh, actually correlate with guilt? And they, they found that most of them do not. So to answer your question, no, there is no scientific base to using this. Which is one of the which is one of the dangers that the experts told me uh, was posed by by the case of Jessica Logan. I realize that not everybody uh, is can afford you know a crack defense team. Was was part of the problem that her lawyer didn't really like a, look into this technology or attack it in any way? So I don't you know it's not it's never my role really to to say when a, when a attorney is uh, doing a good job or not, uh, that's, that's not so much for me, but uh, in the, in the story, you know, we pointed out that it was part of uh, Logan's uh, appeals lawyer. Uh, it was his opinion that uh, in trial at Jessica Logan's trial, uh, her attorney had asked the question of the lead detective, uh, you know, explain this this 911 call analysis in other words he elicited the testimony uh of of the lead detective uh, giving him a platform to talk about it and it was yeah. in the affidavit and then it became part of the trial so that was a problem that the appeals attorney had identified in the case I can uh, I can tell you Brad I read I read Dear Abby and I read uh Ask Amy and um I read all the advice columns and if I've learned anything it's that I assume this this applies for trauma as well. But when it comes to grieving, I mean, people couldn't be more different. I mean, they were, I've seen people reporting that when something horrible happens, they, they laugh inappropriately. And it's, it's like a, it's like a shock reaction. So how somebody reacts on a 911 call and, and looking at that closely enough, to to send them to prison just seems absurd on the face of it. This is what the experts told me, um, more or less that exactly. And we're going to be exploring this uh, more in, in some of our future reporting. But, you know, in a nutshell, they said, uh, listen, like, you know, the, the gamut of, of human emotion is so great that it's, it's very hard to prescribe what someone should or should not do mm-hmm. how, you know, what, what a rational response is. We're all very different. We all handle trauma differently, shock and grief. We all handle that differently. Uh, so, you know, it's something that doctors in the emergency rooms know that, you know, they shouldn't expect uh, any quote, normal reaction uh, mm-hmm. for, from a grieving family. So it's, it, it, it makes this universe very tricky. It makes it very difficult according to the experts to, to make those sort of prescriptions. And that's what they said was, was kind of dangerous about this model being used in actual cases. I'm speaking with Brett Murphy. He did a ProPublica investigation into um, 911 call analysis. We're going to continue our discussion right after a break. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Brett Murphy. He did a ProPublica investigation into something uh, called 911 call analysis, where 
lawmakers in the case of one most unfortunate woman looked at the 911 call that she made about the death of her son and they felt that because of the way she talked and the things she said and the things that she didn't say that it showed that she was guilty and she ended up being convicted has she uh, has had this conviction been overturned Brett uh, no it has not she uh, she appealed the case uh, in the, at the Fourth Circuit uh, asking for a new trial. That appeal was denied. She is currently oh. asking the state Supreme Court to take a look at it. There has not been a decision made on that uh, as of yet. Oh, my gosh. You know, we were talking about how people react differently and sometimes in ways that make them seem suspicious. Um, I don't know if you're a Star Trek fan, but William Shatner was once considered one of the suspects in his wife's death. His wife was an alcoholic. He went off to do a speaking engagement or do some dinner with friends. And as sometimes happens when people are very drunk, she slipped by their pool, fell into the pool and drowned. And when he got home, he saw her body at the bottom of the pool and he called 911 and he was considered a suspect in her death because they said, well, why didn't he jump into the pool and, and try to pull her out? That's what everybody does, but you didn't do that. And he said he thought, he said he, he w- went back over it month after month. Why did I just like sit down? And he said, it, he said he realized that she wasn't moving. There were, she was down at the bottom. There were no air bubbles coming up. He realized the reason he didn't try to pull her out is he knew she was dead. But that behavior for a while made him a suspect until her death was ruled accidental. I mean, people react in bizarre ways when something weird happens. Yeah, you know, some of the uh, some of the readers to the story have written in since we published uh, with a lot of similar stories like that. One of the ones that comes to mind as you were talking was uh, uh, some of the, I think it was the Sandy Hook parents, uh, the, the way in which uh, they they appeared on television. I think maybe um, a mother had, had had smiled nervously at some point, and uh, a lot of folks uh, kind of latched onto that because they thought that wasn't normal and uh, that, that wasn't what they would do. That's sort of where this thing this 911 uh, call analysis sort of operates in that world of, of there are things someone should and shouldn't do in moments of emergency, things that are appropriate and inappropriate. But I think as you've noted, and as a lot of the experts I talked to have noted as well, that it's, it's extremely difficult to do that. It's extremely difficult to say what someone should or shouldn't do or some, what someone should or shouldn't say in those moments. And these, these guilty indicators I've been telling you about are so narrow and uh, so prescriptive that, uh, you know, I found in the reporting that there's a lot of people who, who, who fail this model, who fail the test. They say a lot of the wrong things, a lot of these guilty indicators, um, even though they, they did not do anything. Uh, so I think that's sort of where the rub is with this whole thing. I used to, uh, before I started doing political radio a long time ago, I was a television journalist, and, you know, when you're in the TV news biz, a lot of times, you know, you end up playing 911 calls, 
And I always looked down. I looked askance at people who were so hysterical, you know, I mean, something bad has happened. Fine. You, you know, you call the emergency services, you tell them what they need to hear. And, you know, I don't know, you know, why they basically can't keep it together. And then fast forward a few years where I was actually in the position of calling 911 because of a tragedy. And you know what, Brett? I became one of those people that was hysterical, that was out of breath. I, I, you know, I, I didn't understand all the different ways shock and trauma hit people until, uh, it happened to me. And, um, I guess that's why your reporting, uh, it's, it really struck home because I don't think until people have been in a situation and had to live through these emotions themselves, do you realize just how varied the responses are and yet are perfectly are perfectly normal yeah i think i think you know given the proliferation of of detective procedurals and true crime shows and you know popular culture in general has kind of taught people that there are right and wrong ways to to act in an emergency and uh, skepticism is, is warranted if, if people don't kind of fit into that into that box. But like you said, it's 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 difficult to know those things until you're in that situation for yourself. That's what a lot of the people uh, told me as I was reporting this thing. And and I think the uh, the founders of the program, I should say, they uh, in the reporting they defended it as you know a tool that can be used. That you know you have to understand the research, you have to take the course to really understand how to use it. And, uh, you know, uh, they they defended it. And I think it's, it's it's worth saying that. And they point to all the different cases in which it's been used, you know, hundreds of cases that they say it's been used in as sort of, uh, of evidence of its merits. So it's, it's certainly become widespread. What has been the reaction to your reporting? Uh, there's been a lot. There's been uh, a pretty, uh, pretty loud reaction. A lot. Uh, a lot of readers have written in. Uh, you know, this is my first story with ProPublica, and a lot of them have written and saying some things similar to you that they didn't know that this existed, and they were worried about uh, what sort of effect it might have. You know, they were worried about a chilling effect on people who want to call nine one one, but yeah. might be concerned that you know the things they say or the way that they say them could be used against them. Yeah, it is. It is. That's a good word for it. It is chilling, Brett. Um, this may be uh, your first reporting for ProPublica. I hope it's not the last. Please share with me your work going forward, um, because I think these stories are really important to get out there. I appreciate that, Joan. I will. Thank you very much. Uh, Brett Murphy wrote this for uh, ProPublica. It is his investigation into 911 call analysis. We are going to take a break, and we are going to be back to politics right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. There is another entry in the race to be the next mayor of Chicago. At least I think there is. Frederick Collins is a Chicago police officer who announced that he wants to be the mayor of Chicago. But as of this morning... Um, had not filed uh, his petitions. He joins us now because I've heard, Frederick, you guys got your petitions in? You got your signatures in? Absolutely. 
Good evening <laughs> to you and your audience, and thank you for this opportunity. We most certainly did foul this evening. You know, timing is everything. <laughs> well, you know, a lot of people like to wait uh, to the end to try to get that bottom spot on the ballot, which some people feel is particularly lucky. How many signatures did you file? Well, we're looking at the upwards of being competitive with those who filed 40,000 signatures. So, okay. Better. So we're going to be very competitive with everyone. The, the real good thing that we're very comfortable with is we started 14 months And it really worked out well for us. We know that we have good quality signatures, and uh, they're the signatures that we can defend. And that's really what's important. You know, you have, you're going to have people come in, and they're going to have all sorts of these big numbers and different things like that. But we know from the past, once you challenge those things, uh, they never pan out right. Uh, what we're very happy about is we got our message out. Uh, we've been received very well in all the communities. Uh, and we have a huge uh, amount of support going into this. Now, you are a full-time Chicago police officer. Do you plan to take a leave of absence so that you can campaign, or are you just going to campaign on your time off? Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to work, continue to work for the citizens of Chicago, and we're going to delegate and manage our time very well, as we've done for the 14 months. Um, what do you do as a Chicago cop? Well, I work the streets. I'm a patrolman. And so what I do is I'm that true first responder that when something goes wrong, who shows up immediately first at the scene and is there to give that helping hand or provide that comfort and protection in which we need in our society today. I know that you're also very active in your community. You do a lot of volunteer stuff. Um, why decide to run for mayor? You know what? Because the way I was raised, community is family. It's not just your next-door neighbor, but their family. These are people in which you grow up with, uh, shop with, go to church with, go to school with, build relationships, lifelong relationships with. And the city of Chicago isn't just a city to me. It may be to some people, but to me, this is home. And no matter where I've been at in the world, I've always been happy returning back home to Chicago. And home is worth fighting for. And right now, our home is under attack. Our communities are under attack. Every day, every minute, someone is being carjacked and our children are being shot dead in the street. That's not America. It's not what any American city should take. And it's certainly not something that we will accept. And as the next mayor of the city of Chicago, I'll bring back those happier times when our children were free to play in the parks. Adults felt comfortable going to work or to church, and we saw businesses thriving, and we had a downtown that was robust. Well, how are you going to do that? That's always the, the sticky part. Give us the specifics. Well, I'm glad you asked that question. The first thing any true leader has to have is a vision, a plan, and then a strategy to work that plan. And so one of the things I talk about, we understand that, 51% of all crime committed today across our country is done by young people between the ages of 12 to 17. And so we've got to really address that issue. We just can't uh, ignore it. We've got to really address it. And that means enforcing our curfews, investing in our educational systems, making sure that we upgrade and modernize our educational schools. You know, children, if you take any child to an Apple store, you should see the way they just light up 
because they see all the new technology, all the new gadgets, and they just want to learn. They don't even know what all they do, but they're so excited because it looks modernized to them. Well, at the same time, when you invite our children or you take them to school, they're looking at desks that are still look like they're from the 19th century. And so we've got to modernize our education and really invest in it. We've got to get rid of the chalkboards and invest in smart boards. So we have 85-inch screens in front of the classroom and screens on both sides so the children in real time can actually see where no matter where they're sitting in class can hear, see, and understand what the teacher is showing them in real time and not have to wait till the teacher gets to them one by one. We've also got to make sure that we've got teacher aides in the classroom to give that special attention to those child to those children who may be just a little bit more slower or a little bit more comprehensive at learning. But we've got to also bring back law and order because no matter what programs we put forth, no matter what investments we make in society, no society can survive without law and order. And so I Okay, well, this, what specific changes would you make to your own department to promote law and order? Well, here's the thing I would do. There's a lot that needs to be changed in training. It needs to be modernized. But here's one of the first thing I would do is implement new policies and get rid of those that do hinder our brave men and women in uniform from being able to serve and protect us. When Give me an example no of one. Policy, the no chase policy. When you blatantly tell criminals that you're not going to chase them, you see what happens. Within last week alone, we had two major car accidents that were involved in vehicle thefts. And it's a shame the amount of life that was lost. And the reason why they felt like they could speed through the city and speed through our great state without being apprehended by the police is because they're aware of the no chase policy. It is simply an open, free ticket for criminals to commit crimes. And then all they know all they have to do is just run and they're not going to be chased. We've OK, got well, the argument, no as you know, there's a safety argument to be made about high speed chases because they frequently cost the lives of people who are innocent bystanders, bystanders. Um, Rather than loosening up the chase policy, um, what about using technology? Uh, using, I've heard people talk about using drones to follow these cars. I remember a long, long time ago, a cop was talking to me. I was part of a group of people, and somebody said just that, you know, well, you know, what kind of engine do you have in that car? Because I've got a really big engine, and I could outrun you. And the police officer looked at the person and said, yeah, but you know what? You can't outrun a radio. All I have to do is radio ahead with a description of your car. If we had cameras at the entrance and exits to the expressway, if we had uh, drones that could follow cars suspected of being involved in a crime. Yeah. Wouldn't that accomplish yeah, the same thing the a little more safely? No, it wouldn't. And here's, here's, the, here's my argument against it. Drones and cameras don't prevent crime. They record it. Only police prevent crime with their presence, and only police can apprehend criminals. And that's the problem, is that we have more video of crime, but if you take a look at the apprehension, it has gone down more than 90%. If you take a look at those... Is that because there's not enough officers out there? That's one of the reasons. But the other reason is the bad policies as to why we don't have enough officers. 
We've got to understand one thing. The reality of it is, in a perfect world, those things sound good. But in a realistic world, it takes police presence and law and order to make sure that there are boundaries within society to help protect society at all times. And no camera, ask anyone, can ever replace an officer actually in presence. They are simply so, tools to aid, but they are so not So you think we need to hire to more person power? I, I do. Don't you believe? Uh, let, me t- let, me ask, let me just put this question to you. Where there is more presence of police and there's an enforcement of law and order, why do people choose to move their raised families and businesses grow and their attendance in schools grow and family time and safety grows? Why? Because there is that presence, that physical presence. And, and let me tell you something. People search out areas to see where it's safe is at. And they don't search out areas to see where there's more cameras at. They search out to see where there are more police presence at. Mm-hmm. Well, right now we have a real shortage. I know that with the retirements and people who have moved on to other departments, we are down, I think, at least a thousand, if not more, officers. Oh, uh, somebody, I, oh. you're, you're down. You're down at least thirty five hundred officers. And, and, and let me tell you how short we are in the police department. Uh, there used to be 50 officers to work in the area. Now you're lucky if you got 11. And you can tell by the call, because when you call the police, you may be waiting an hour or two for some calls during certain peak hours, because we just don't have the bodies. And you need the bodies to be there to enforce and to assist. And not only just with crime, but let's say, for instance, your child is having a seizure. Who's always the first one there before the ambulance gets there is the police. And the police use their training to help deal with that to make sure to provide as much life-saving techniques as possible. Well, when you don't have those police bodies in those cars, guess what? There's a deficient element of protection for society. You just simply can't have a safe society without law and order, without more police. One of the things that the Chicago Police Department has um, been criticized for, been told they need to improve on, is recruitment. How do you recruit more officers? I think that's something that we do have to take a look at. And how you do it is you start out with wanting a very diverse police department. And how you have to do that is you have to go in all 77 neighborhoods. You have to actively recruit You have to start in the high schools, you know, and and really talk about what community service is. You know, I learned about community service as a child from my parents. First of all, we're working with my church and in my community and and serving those who were less fortunate or just as poor as I was. And from that, it grew into really being involved in my community and really wanting to give back as I grew and started my own family. And I've taught my kids the same way. So we've got to understand and promote more public, you know, involvement with public service and the rewards that come with it. Uh, And so we're going to have to be very diverse in going out and making sure that our department looks like the community in which it serves. That's what we have to do. And we just can't do it in words. We have to actually get on out and do it. And then we have to display it 
in the type of service that we provide to our community and to the residents in which we serve. We truly are public servants who take a great deal of pride in being of service to the community. I'm talking to Frederick Collins. He is running to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. We're going to take a real quick break and talk more to him right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am joined by Frederick Collins. He is a Chicago police officer who is running to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. Uh, Frederick, we know that to uh, win a mayoral contest takes money. It takes endorsements. It takes um, people who support your campaign and are willing to knock on doors and get the vote out. When a field is as 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 is as crowded as this one is, sometimes those things are hard to come by. How are you going to accomplish getting those three uh, parts of a solid campaign? Well, I think one of the things that's most evident is the fact that we got the opportunity to be on your show, and that's because <laughs> we've been out on the streets all day long. Uh, you certainly don't have nobody's on your show. Uh, it's because we've actually got out here and knocked on doors, but not only knocked on doors, but I've got 30-something years of being involved in community activity and making sure that our children had a good education, making sure that families were safe, trying to feed the homeless, uh, trying to provide for shelter to get our homeless from under the viaducts and the bridges, uh, working within my church. I'm also a uh, mason. Uh, we deal with helping children with disabilities and raising money so that if their parents have to have them in the hospital for months at a time, it doesn't cost them not one penny. Uh, and I've also just tried to be a really good father to my three children, uh, helping to put them through school and through college. I have three grandchildren. They think I'm the greatest pawpaw in the world. <laughs> and so you take those experiences and you put them all together and you say, you know what? Home is worth fighting for. And we have to fight to protect our communities, our children and our families and our loved ones. But also, Chicago is a great place where businesses can thrive, but not under this management and not under this crime. Crime is like a cancer. And if it goes untreated, it just gets worse. I hope to have the antidote in which to treat this cancer of crime through experience, through time, and through involvement within the community. How do you feel your campaign's going so far? Absolutely great. When I heard I was going to be on your show, I said I must be doing something right. <laughs> well, you're very you're very kind to, to say that. Um, let's talk about what you feel your biggest challenge is. What is the biggest obstacle you face? What's the biggest challenge that you face? I would say the biggest challenge that uh, our campaign and my campaign faces at this time is just really staying focused on what really is the issue and addressing those issues and making sure that my plan and my strategy is what gets out there. I'm, I'm not a politician, so I'm not for the uh, average uh, speeches that people write and they just say things that they don't mean. I'm a straight shooter, but I'm most of all a common sense guy. And so what I really want to do is just make sure we can get our message out as as much and as far as possible and reach as many people as possible. And in a city of a little over 3 million people, 
that is a challenge, but mm-hmm. it's a challenge that I'm willing to take. Different candidates um, for mayor, particularly, usually have a certain cons- constituency. You know, Chewy Garcia um, has uh, a lot of backing from Hispanic communities. Brandon Johnson uh, has the backing of the Chicago Teachers Union. What's your constituency? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. Uh, we were out uh, for the last 14 months getting signatures uh, and campaigning and doing radio interviews and TV shows. And one of the funny things that, that happened was is I come from a long line of family members who have been government workers, ministers, preachers, school teachers, doctors. And so for me, uh, I'm very happy to say we have SEIU members that volunteer and work on our campaign. We have CTU members that work and volunteer on our campaign. We have firefighters. We have plumbers. We have painters. We have everyday stay-at-home moms. We have uh, fathers and families. that are. So we have actually a diverse campaign uh, group of people. So it doesn't surprise me. It doesn't impress any of us when we hear that seven people who sit on the board decided for a, a group of people that this is the person they're going to pick. We know that CTU in the last two mayoral elections failed. They ran Chuy Garcia and they failed. They ran Tony Pratwinkle and they failed. Why? Because nobody's really reaching the voter. And we have to take a look at also the fact that voting has been down. And why has that been? Because many of us ordinary, everyday taxpaying citizens have lost faith in our government. And we're looking for someone who's going to be a straight shooter, who's going to truly be transparent and understands what the everyday true issues are and not just a stump speech. Where have you been campaigning? Where do you find uh, that people are the most receptive? Well, that's the blessed part of it. Whether we're up north, whether we're on the lake shore, or whether we're out south, or even in the Austin area out west, uh, people have been very receptive. And what I love about it is, is that they understand that I get it. My mother once told me when I was a kid in seventh grade, she said, Freddie, I want to tell you something. She said, it is more important to understand the gift that God gave you. He gave you two ears and one mouth so that you can listen more than you talk. She said, because <laughs> through listening, you learn more. And so I've just taken that life lesson and been very successful through life. And I'm so humbled by it. I, I really am. And I, I just think this is the greatest American city on earth, but it is just under siege right now. And I just want to continue doing what I've always done, and that is to be service to the people. I'm running for mayor of the city of Chicago, not to govern the people, but to work for the people. I think we need real representation on the fifth floor that actually comes down on the ground floor and does the work. Did you uh, did you talk with the family before you made this declaration? Because I know that running for mayor, running for any office, really, is uh, it's 24 seven and it's uh, it's a family affair. You know, my, my youngest daughter told me something. She said, Dad, uh, when I first bought it to him, uh, I've got two daughters and a son, uh, two granddaughters and a grandson. And she said, Dad, I want to tell you this. She said, no matter what, I admire you so much because you're always trying to help. She said, and I've watched that all my life. She said, so I understand. She said, there are times 
you know, where, where we say, you know, Dad, when are you going to take some time for yourself? And it's really not about Frederick Collins, but it's about all of Chicago. And what can we do together? There's power and strength and power and love. And I love this city, and I think our diversity is our strength. So they are all for it. What is the one main thing that you would like to accomplish as mayor? Just one thing. The one thing I would love to accomplish is bringing law and order back to Chicago to make all of the citizens once again feel safe sitting on their front porch. I like to see those seniors not to live in fear anymore of watching their grandchildren play across the street in the park. And if we can do that, then we can build upon everything else. Because once you have a safe society, you then have a prosperous and a hopeful society. And that really, to me, is what it's about. Because we've gotten to a point now, our children are being made to stay inside because parents are just scared of the drive-bys. We've got single women scared to go to work and leave out early in the morning for being carjacked. And we've got seniors that wait all week long until their child can come and get them, take them to the store when they used to be able to go by themselves because they're fearful of what might happen to them. I don't want to live in a place of fear, and America's not a place of fear. America is a place of hope. And I just feel so blessed to be born in this country with opportunity to experience that. Well, I think, Frederick, that was very well said. Where can people get more information about you and your campaign? Well, thank you so much. You can visit my website at CollinsForChicago2023.com. That's CollinsForChicago2023.com. And you can also call my campaign office at 773-739-8082. And uh, please come and join us. And even make a donation, because it really is all about us. You know, I've spent the last 34 years, and I'm just amazed at how much, even at age 53, I'm still learning, and I like learning. My father once told me, he said, when a fruit thinks it has grown too much, it falls off the tree. I want to stay with the tree. I think (laughs) there's so much more growing that we can do as a city. But I thank you so much for this opportunity, and I'm so humbled. I've listened to you for years. This really is a high mark in my life. Thank you so much. Well, you're very kind to say that, Frederick. Um, I wish you I wish you the best. I know what a massive undertaking it is to run for elected office. And people who've never seen it up close don't realize the time and dedication and energy that it requires. And anybody who uh, steps up to that plate is is worth our time and worth the conversation. Uh, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, We are going to take a break for news. And when we come back, we're going to be joined uh, by Professor Joel Ostro. We have uh, not spoken to him for a while. He's a professor of political science at Benedictine University. And he is an expert on both Russia and authoritarianism. We have uh, not been talking about the war in Ukraine on a daily basis, as we did for a very long time. But there have been updates. Lately, it seems like the news has been good. You know, what Russian withdrawals, 
Ukrainian troops moving forward. But today, um, President Zelensky is warning the citizens of Ukraine that they should be prepared for more Russian airstrikes. One of the things that he talked about with our government was the need to protect Ukraine's airspace. Well, we'll see how European and American diplomats react to this latest threat. We're going to have a conversation with Professor Joel Ostro when we come right back after the news, right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. We are joined once again by Professor Joel Ostro of Benedictine University. He's a professor of political science and an expert in all things Russia and authoritarianism, which is really interesting because not only do we have things in Ukraine to talk about, uh, but it looks like there is some real civil unrest in the very authoritarian regime of China. Uh, Joel, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me, Joan. Good to be with you. Okay, well, let's... um, do you uh, have a preference? Should we start with Ukraine or should we start with China? <laughs> it's your show, my friend. Okay. You well, so me. much for me giving you a shot at power. Never mind. Um, let's start with <laughs> let's start with what's going on in China. Um, if I understand things correctly, you know, there's been this incredible COVID lockdown. I mean, they do not want covid to be a problem and they have been locking people into their homes and it's just been going on day after day and week after week and apparently there was a fire in a residential building firefighters had some difficulty getting there the people who were talking to reporters said they believed that the firefighters had problems because of roadblocks and covid restrictions and it seems to have been a literally the straw that broke the camel's back. I mean, there have been protests in the street. Um, is is this a reaction to the fact that they have been kept so stringently in the in these protocols? So it's important to, so that people have some perspective. Um, as we know, COVID-19 originated uh, in China um, in December, uh, November, December 2019. Um, and at the very beginning of the pandemic, when when uh, we were starting to realize uh, how dangerous and deadly the virus was, um, but but still didn't know much about how it spread or anything. Um, China did deal with that in Wuhan and neighboring cities with um, very stringent uh, uh, lockdowns uh, that lasted um, two and sometimes longer months. Um, I I happen to have a a colleague in Xi'an, China, which is maybe a two and a half, three hour drive from Wuhan. It's a very big city. It's larger than Chicago. Um, and and the entire city was um, sort of on shelter in place, but but really far more restrictions on movements than than anything we've ever experienced here. People were confined to about a two block by two block radius around their apartments, and with only a limited amount of time, they were able to leave their homes. Um, so uh, that was, and, and that was 
effective in the sense that uh, China did not experience anywhere near the infection rates or um, hospitalization rates or fatality rates nationwide that, that we did. They, they succeeded in confining the virus. And then use that lesson when infections would sprout up in other cities, towns, villages. Those would be uh, on shelter-in-place orders as well with similar protocols, uh, restrictions on movement. Um, and, and so to emphasize two things, um, the nature of those lockdowns is we would consider brutal um, because they are. They're, they're, they are long and they are incredibly restrictive. Uh, but it's not a nationwide uh, situation and never has been. It, it's been where the virus has, has has sprouted. They've snuffed it out. And that has been an effective protocol for containing the spread of the virus and, and, and minimizing hospitalization and fatalities. Uh, but the restrictions on people's lives has, has been a great cost. Um, and it's not something that could be borne forever. Uh, now you add to that um, the situation you just described, um, President Xi's uh, sort of consolidation of even more power at a very publicized party congress uh, a month or two ago, um, and with no end in sight to his uh, strict authoritarian rule. Um, and um, it's almost like the country was waiting for a trigger Uh as winter has come, infection rates have gone up, so more and more cities are under these lockdowns, and and it seems like um, uh, the patience of the Chinese people has is, is finally been exhausted with that. Um, where it will go is anybody's guess. The Chinese government's ability to crack down on protest is is enormous, um, and and their willingness to crack down is demonstrated over the years. Um, so it's it's far too early to, to say whether this will develop into anything more. Um, she is a pretty cautious leader in that regard. Um, so if I had to guess, uh, you know, I, I would I would guess that he would find a way to ease the protocols while also uh, clamping down on protests. So we'll have to, just have to see. I've also been reading uh, that, um, and I I didn't realize this that apparently. Our administration has been either cutting back or stopping on um, the chips and other high tech stuff that we export to China and that this is potentially going to one of the reasons one of the things that I was in the article I read was that it would hamper their ability to spy on other countries because they don't have access to some of these high tech components. Um, with the protests in the street, uh, pressure, um, economic pressure coming from our country, do you think at any point that that re- results in regime change? Mm, I wouldn't hold my breath for that. Um, but um, but China's leaders and, and President Xi and and his predecessors um I would imagine she to be from the same mold. He clearly has more of an iron-fisted approach to rule uh, than his uh, immediate predecessors had. Um, but I have been impressed with um, his deafness and ability and willingness to adjust. 
um, as the situation dictates. So um, I would imagine that he will navigate this. On the economic questions, um, you know, both the United States and China have an interest in maintaining and improving their economic relations with each other. Um, at the same time, the pandemic demonstrated weaknesses in uh, our own country's approach uh, to the global economy in this age of globalization. Uh, and so the pandemic demonstrated that um, that that we, in order to avoid uh, future repetitions of supply chain shocks, particularly in critical technologies, that we needed to have alternate production capacity, including domestic capacity. Um, so this effort to um, ramp up our own chip production, for example, uh, began after the pandemic uh, hit uh, in the Trump administration. And it's something that, if you remember, there was one debate during the campaign where uh, President Biden and, and then-President Trump agreed on on that need to uh, to re-diversify in some strategic areas our own productive capacity and not to rely not only on China, but not to rely exclusively on any one country, including our own, mm-hmm. uh, for critical critical elements. Uh, and computer chips are, are a major piece of that. So it was always our plan since the pandemic started to to uh, develop a better production production capacity here in the U.S., but also to find other partners uh, where our producers can uh, can produce those chips, not just in China. I'm speaking to Professor no, China, Joel Ostro. China wants the same thing. Yeah, China wants the same thing. It's hard to interrupt. You know, we all yeah. the whole the global economy needs that. Well, it seems like with the pandemic, though, we've seen. Uh, uh, is there such a word as deglobalization? This idea that oh my God. You know, if we can't count on these international supply chains, we should make at least some of this stuff here in this country. I, I, I know that the United States has certainly experienced that. I would have to imagine China has, too. I wouldn't call it deglobalization, though, but, you know, globalization is not without its flaws. Uh, there are myriad flaws and the pandemic and the um, the uh, shortages um that that every country experienced as a result of how production and trade was being handled um, exposed a flaw that that um, most of us were not aware existed, um, and so it, it's just wise to um, to make adjustments in the face of that. But that doesn't mean that um, the era of trade with tariffs as close to zero as possible is 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 over. If anything, uh, you know, it, it's going to jumpstart. Um, with even more force, uh, I would expect, uh, mm. and in a healthier way, uh, in in that diversified productive capacity, that it gives more more venues for people to have good jobs at good wages, as Mike Dukakis used to say. <laughs> um, we need to take a break. I'm speaking with Professor Joel Ostro from uh, Benedictine University, and when we come back, I want to talk to you about the Chinese government. Posting porn on Twitter. We'll be back with more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Political science professor Joel Ostro from Benedictine University joins me. We've been talking about China. And uh, one of the columnists that I read is Jonathan Last. And today he copied a Twitter thread from... uh, 
uh, a guy in China. He uses a doesn't use a real name. Um, but he said that since Elon Musk got rid of a lot of the safety protocols and the people who were monitoring Twitter, it said China is conducting a cyber attack on Twitter in order to stop the spread of news about the protests. Short version, Chinese bots are flooding the platform with fake posts about escort services, gambling and porn. Uh, they're doing it supposedly to drown out legitimate search results. Uh, I've also read that the Chinese government is doing as much as they possibly can do in this interconnected world to try to pull pictures of the protests off the Internet. Um, what do you think of these efforts? Well, I'm teaching a course right now. Uh, I, in one of the courses, I'm teaching a, a unit on conspiracy theories. Uh, and uh, I was teaching that class, so I didn't see the news story. But during the break, because of what you mentioned, I Googled Chinese Twitter porn. And I just want to say, whatever <laughs> As one does. is now spying on me, I, you know, whatever they're picking up, whatever <laughs> list I've got on, that was prompted by Joan Esposito, the <laughs> Hey, hey, you know what? When the administrators at Benedictine give you a call tonight, <laughs> yeah. don't come crying to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Uh, um, well, it uh, it exposes the... Uh, frankly, the threat uh, that Elon Musk poses <clears throat> with the purchase of Twitter uh, because because of what you said um, and, and what he has done. He has said basically anyone can post or say anything they want. Um, there will be no content restrictions. Uh, so um, China wisely, uh, given their given their political interests and, and the political system, uh drowned out legitimate posts about protests in China. Why wouldn't that regime do that? And um, Twitter uh, should increasingly become a useless, a, a more and more useless place to be, uh, but more and more of a threat to legitimate information than it already was, if that's possible to even imagine. Um, I mean, Elon Musk is as much uh, uh, an individual with authoritarian tendencies and a danger to democracy. It's the Chinese government. Amen to that. Um, so uh, it is not surprising. But, yeah, China is very good at scrubbing um, the internal Internet there. Uh, censorship is, is rampant. Um, and it, what, it is what makes the spread of these protests so impressive, uh, the ingenuity of Chinese people, particularly young people, to get around those restrictions, uh, and and so also exposes the difficulty a government has in in imposing those restrictions. Um, and indeed, one can be sympathetic with to some extent with um, the problems that social media providers in the West have also found at, at um, stopping the spread of disinformation and conspiracy theories and the like. Um, they're better now than they were five years ago, but it's still a very difficult thing to do. Um, so, uh, and, and China's internal problems with controlling that kind of information are, are, are well known, but their ability to try to, uh, their efforts to try to drown it out are also well known and shouldn't be surprising. 
Because you all know t- it is quite creative to use porn. Yeah. <laughs> that from the Chinese government. So I know, you know and you they, know. They know what sells in the West. <laughs> I was just going to say, sadly, I don't, um, I don't follow any Chinese accounts, so I, I don't have firsthand knowledge of, of this. <laughs> Um, Though I actually, for a long time, I didn't even realize there was porn possible on Twitter. I was um, somebody had talked to me. We we had talked about some subject and I went to Twitter and I I like, you know, put it in the search bar. And the first thing that came up was um, a clip from a video that I was not expecting. And um, so I guess I'm kind of late to the game that Twitter is is perhaps more multifaceted than I had suspected for a long time. Anyway, I don't use Twitter. So you're talking to the wrong person. I, I can't get in the depths much on Twitter because I don't use it. So do you use any social uh, media? I'm a proud non-user. Um, a little bit of Instagram and, and, you know, I'm 57, so I'm on Facebook more. Um, but, uh, yeah, um, but not too much. Well, you know, because um, it's from everything that I've read, despite what the Chinese are doing, uh, the two big audiences on Twitter have always been sports people and political people, that those are the ones yeah. who, you know, uh, go there to to post. And um, I've been I've been following a lot of, of political people on Twitter. It seems to be that right now. Many of them are staying, but the ones who I follow who are very high profile all say that they have lost thousands of followers. And I just read this morning, you know, Elon Musk is bragging about the fact that uh, there are more people signing up for Twitter. But an analysis was done, and it turns out that Republicans, particularly Republican politicians, have gained thousands of followers and almost every Democratic poster has lost. Some of them, yeah. um, I know uh, Jed Legum yeah. said that he uh, almost overnight he lost 10,000 followers of people just choosing not to use Twitter anymore. It looks like Twitter is not that it wasn't always, you know, um, had right wing voices, but it looks like it's going to become very right wing going forward unless something changes. Well, it seems possible. Um and let's face it, I mean, uh, WCPT notwithstanding, you know, it's kind of like the talk radio spaces. There's so much more uh, ultra right wing uh, than there is progressive or even, frankly, centrist. Um, and uh, I, I, I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised to see that also happen uh, to a large extent, at least in the, the political side of the social media. Um, it's a. Uh, it's not a good phenomenon. It's not a healthy one for society, but um, it's still the case that no one has really figured out how to preserve a healthy information environment in a democratic society uh, in the digital age. And it's it's really a problem. And and we see it all over our politics um, in, in the extremism that that uh, that this reality has generated. And I almost think, you know, for when. I'm going to sound like an old person. When I was a little girl, you know, and we had Walter Cronkite and and everybody believed the news and we believed that reporters um, were telling us the truth. And I think that for those of us of a certain age, it was ingrained in us that, you know, when information comes to us, it's 
somehow vetted or legitimate. And I think for a lot of older folks, you know, they're having trouble being critical thinkers when it comes to social media because we are, our right. instinct is to if it's if it's like if it's on TV, it must be true. I can't tell you how many times I heard that. And, you know, yeah. if it's on the radio, it must be true. And if it's on the Internet, it must be true. But but no, <laughs> but no. But but we can still trust journalism because there are professional standards and ethics and uh, processes for editing that still lead to reliable information in uh, mainstream newspapers, television, radio. Uh, the problem is social media is not media in exactly, and 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 there really needs to be action taken. Uh, uh, you know, in in the antitrust sort of vein to break up some of these platforms and 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 to have some way to designate those that pertain that that seek to be media um to uh to then have some kinds of standards um you know the gatekeepers uh mm-hmm. that used to be the editors right um as i told my students uh in, at the beginning of this conspiracy theory you know we talk about misinformation and i i described to them because none of them has lived in this world when it didn't matter whether you watched ABC, NBC, CBS, Evening News, right? It was just a preference for personality. You know, did you like Peter Jennings or exactly. did you like Tom but, and, but And they would have the lead story was more often than not going to be the same on each of those programs. It was going to be the same at the top left of the front page of any newspaper, there might be a little bit difference because the journalists would have slightly different sources or take a different take, but the editing was the same. The decision on what the big story of the day was and, and what constituted r- legitimate sourcing, those were standardized. And so you could trust mm-hmm. um, that still exists in the mainstream media and people lose sight of that, but it's much like the Chinese porn tweets uh, blowing out the information about the protests in China, social media uh, and, and and this digital age has uh, sort of overwhelmed uh, the voice of legitimate journalism. And, and um, you know, you go back to the founding fathers who recognized in the Federalist Papers when they talked about the need for a free press, talked about if we're going to have a society that's a government of the people by the people, those people need to be informed and need to be able to trust the information they're getting. And we do not have that information environment. Now you cannot trust what it, like you pointed out, you hear something, but you can't just trust that it's true. You read something in a meme that doesn't mean it's accurate. Um, And that is destabilizing for our political system. Uh, We need a way to fix that. I don't know what that is. Um, we are going to take a break. Professor Joel Ostro and I are going to talk about what's going on in Ukraine when we come back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am joined by Professor Joel Ostro, who is an expert in Russia. And let's, you know, I realize that before we can even talk about what's going on today, I need to have more background and a better frame of reference. Explain to me 
the relationship between Russia and Belarus? Is it like France and Germany, where there are just two countries that, you know, mostly get along? No. <laughs> it's, okay. Uh, um, in many ways, Belarus uh, isn't really an independent state. Um, by choice of its president, uh, Belarus's policy is basically Russia's policy. Uh, I had the unfortunate opportunity uh, to meet Lukashenko, the president of Belarus. Well, I didn't really meet him, uh, but I encountered him when I was doing my dissertation research in the Russian parliament back in the early 90s. It was he had first been elected president of Belarus, and I was coming around a corner and he was coming around another corner, and all, he's about this. We're both short. <laughs> I'm about five, six and a half. And probably we just almost smacked into each other, full body, frontal, just smacking into each other around the corner, maybe about six inches apart. And I was rattled after that because of what I saw. And I went to my journalist, my Russian journalist friends there, and I described to this guy that I almost bumped into, and my description was, it's like his two eyes were pinwheels spinning in opposite directions. And three of them right away said, oh, you just met Lukashenko. Um, oh, my God. Truly, they knew who you were talking yeah. about. Oh, yeah. The, he, the, he, this, so this was 30 years ago. Um, spooky, scary guy. Um also a brutal authoritarian dictator uh, in his own country, uh, but very much a subordinate to Russian policy uh, and subordinate to Putin. Um, yeah. Uh, why doesn't Vladimir Putin talking about? Why doesn't supposedly you know one of the big goals of Vladimir Putin is. You know, one of the biggest tragedies was that when the USSR broke up and if he could only restore that glory. I mean, he didn't go to Crimea and set up a puppet government. He said Crimea is ours. Why isn't Belarus part of Russia? Uh, Because Belarus was not charting an independent course, so we didn't need to. Uh, Ukraine was charting an independent course. Uh, which he described as he found illegitimate, and he didn't have a willing puppet there. Uh, ah. So, yeah. So he doesn't need to roll troops in and stake a flag because he's essentially got them anyway. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I'm trying to think of another situation that's like that in the world, and I'm I'm drawing a blank. Uh, so it's pretty unique. Okay, I don't know if you saw in uh, the Washington Post, apparently this happened yesterday. The uh, Belarusian foreign minister died suddenly. Now, it didn't say that he fell down any stairs. It didn't say that he accidentally fell out of a window. But they're being very coy about what happened, just that it was very sudden and he was 64 years old. Do you think this is do you think this is another one of those um Suicide by staircase? We have no way of knowing. Um, I had not heard anything about him, certainly not publicly expressing any opposition to the war that I'm aware of. Um, He would not have held that position were he not in lockstep with uh, Lukashenko and Putin. Um, 
So it's really hard to know. Um, perhaps, I, I mean, Ukraine and Belarus in the past had been close. I, I really can't comment on it. I don't know. Um, and unless there's anything obvious that would suggest that he was um, staking out some kind of opposition position, then perhaps. Um, uh, but which uh, it doesn't seem, at I least publicly, he's been a long-term. He's been a long-time ally of Belarus's president, as far as I know, and have never heard of any kind of uh, any kind of distance between the two of them to this point. So. I may have um, a vivid imagination, but with, let's see, there was the staircase guy. There was a couple yeah. of people that went out the window accidentally. Went out window. Yeah. yeah. Do you think that I'm crazy by thinking, you know, maybe at least one of them were spies for the West and were feeding the West information? Uh, or is that just me wanting to, you know, create this into some kind of John le Carre story? Yeah, I don't think it needs to be as complicated as that. I think almost all of those were people who internally uh, uh, expressed positions divergent from uh, the Kremlin's, which is uh, that, you know, that this is not even a war. It's a special military operation to liquidate Ukraine of Nazis. Uh, and uh, and these guys are probably all folks who one way or another articulated a position that that that's insanity. Uh, and it's destructive for Russia, destructive for Russia's economy, destructive for the personal interests of Russia's elite, uh, of which all of those folks that you you alluded to uh, were members of. Um, they certainly didn't have a self-interest in this war uh, and uh, paid the ultimate price. And so certainly if Belarus's foreign minister had uh, signaled anything to Lukashenko, and the only thing I can think of is um, – uh, opposition to the wanton attacks on Ukraine's energy system that has been uh, the norm now for the last couple of weeks and, and is likely to continue indefinitely. Um, uh, if he expressed opposition to that, uh, that could have run him into trouble. Um, mm. That's the only thing recent that could provoke that because it is so crazy. So, yeah. Okay, I thought maybe you would have some inside scoop. I know at least one of these people had to be spies. Um, maybe that's just okay. wishful thinking. <laughs> this is why I do not lecture to students in in this is because they don't have to be spies in this situation because because this war is so patently um, illegal. Poorly thought out, poorly executed, and harmful to Russia in every in every way, shape, and form. Uh, that that they don't have to be spies to run afoul of Putin. Um, they just have to be decent people, Ugh. really. And isn't that sad? Isn't that yeah. sad? Um, let's take. Um, uh, there was an article. Uh, there was an article published just within the last half hour in the New York Times. Apparently, thousands of Russian anti-war activists are now in U.S. prisons, immigration prison system, uh, because they came here seeking asylum. Uh, if this proves to be true, uh, I don't see how the administration is doing itself or anyone else any favors uh, by imprisoning these folks. Uh, did it say uh, that there? That policy needs to change immediately. If that's if that's wow. the case. Wow. Yeah, I that, see the headline. 
Anti-war activists who flee Russia find detention, not freedom in the U.S. Right, Hmm. right. Uh, And the administration, and let me, you know, say what I repeat when I'm on with you all the time. I have nothing but praise for the Biden administration and how it has handled this situation uh, for the last 12 months, really, when it began warning that that an invasion was was coming and nobody believed them. Uh, The intelligence was correct. The strategy has been correct. The diplomacy has been outstanding and the results uh, speak for themselves. They've been quite positive for Ukraine. Russia has been rebuffed over and over and over again. Um, this is this would just be a, a grotesque uh, miscalculation and really inexcusable. It's policy that needs to change. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to have to look into that. You're right. It was just posted uh, a few minutes ago. Uh, we are going to right. take a break. We're going to be back with more on this with Professor Joel Oster right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Benedictine University professor of political science Joel Ostro and I are talking about what's going on in Ukraine. And there's um, a story in the Washington Post about the air war in Ukraine and how President Zelensky is telling the citizens, you know, that there's they'd better brace. There's going to be more Russian airstrikes uh, Russian airstrikes have made some of the utilities in the country unreliable. One of the requests President Zelensky had at the very beginning of this war of Western Europe and the United States and other countries was, you know, you've got to give us what we need to make yeah. our skies secure. Have yeah. we not done that? Uh, we largely have. Um Here's the the thing is uh, the last so I, the last wave of Russian missile attacks on Ukraine's uh, electricity uh, grids plural uh, in across many major cities um, the the last reports I've read were when that one Ukrainian air defense missile it appears went astray uh, mm-hmm. and and crashed in Poland and it's unclear if it had made impact with the Russian missile before uh, being diverted off or if it had just gone astray. Um, But in that attack, if my memory serves, uh, Russia had launched 70 missiles around different targets in Ukraine, and Ukraine had shot down somewhere on the order of 45 to 50 of them. Uh, So that's, you know, that's not, Rock, you know, that's not that's no iron dome. It's more like a Swiss cheese dome. Yeah, but really. It's still knocking down a lot of those missiles. It's, and the air defenses, missile defense is never a hundred percent. And you know, when I was studying this stuff, if you were talking anything above fifty percent was considered spectacularly good. Uh, the Russia's missiles that they're using right now are older technology and not as good. So they should be easier to shoot down. Um, and clearly Ukraine is going to can need continual resupply uh, to have any measure of, of air defense. Um, and that resupply, there've been numerous articles now that have appeared over recent weeks about how it's going to be difficult for the West, not just the U S but us and our allies to keep up with that demand without depleting our own stockpiles so those are real considerations. It's going to be hard. Um, Russia is not 
stopping building artillery. They're going to continue to make artillery. And it looks like through the winter, at least they're going to continue to unleash that artillery, uh, primarily on the Ukrainian electrical in mm-hmm. electricity infrastructure, power infrastructure, because by knocking out electricity, they're also knocking out water. Because if you take away the ability to pump the water, then you've taken out the water. Uh, yeah. Uh, or clean so, the water. Or clean the water exactly. Um, and uh, and uh, this strategy is, um, you know, branded state terrorism. Uh, it is a violation of the laws of war. Uh, you know, for example, the U.S. never took that tactic uh, in Iraq or in Afghanistan. Um, certainly not intention, not with intent. And uh, basically, all of Russia's attacks now are of this sort. Um, every single one of them is is a violation of the Geneva Conventions and and just basic norm war is something that comes with norms there are things you that are allowed and things that are not allowed some of those codified in law and some by just standard practice um and russia has thrown all of that out the window uh which is what makes its behavior so dangerous and why it can't be allowed to stand um the same goes for more traditional war crimes um, you know, mass grave was just dug up in Kherson, uh, the city that Ukraine recently liberated. Um, and we're going to continue to hear stories like that over and over again as well. Um, I also read this morning that there was some concern, apparently uh, arms, weapons, shipments to Taiwan have been delayed because of um, the demands of what we are sending to Ukraine. Um, I know this is maybe seems like an obvious point. But, you know, in wartime, in World War Two, we stepped up our capability to produce these things. Is that not happening? It's happening. It's definitely happening, not just not just here, but uh, in our European among our European NATO allies as well. Uh, production is definitely ramping up. Uh, but uh, and I imagine it will it will, in fact, be able to keep up as well. Um, but you have a, a very small Ukraine against a very large Russia. Um, and as I've said from the beginning, this is this is not going to be over soon. Russia has the capacity to continue doing this for a long, long time. And it seems, at least for now, like the Russian government has the willingness and the Russian public um, is at best tolerating, at worst in denial about what's going on. Is it up to Russia to bring this conflict to an end? I mean, it doesn't seem to be Ukraine doesn't seem to be getting the material or the personnel that it would that would be required to overwhelm Russian forces. Um, It's you know, they're they they're holding their own and that's great. But as you just pointed on, pointed out, this has been going on for a long time. It appears that it will continue for a long time. So is it up to Vladimir Putin to uh, finally decide that he's had enough? Um, I would answer this question uh, differently, if I may. Um, Go ahead. Early in the summer, uh, you were gracious enough to have on air um, a student who I met uh, uh, through the course of my work, um, a student of a, of a colleague of mine 
who teaches in Lviv, uh, Ukraine. Uh, and she and her students, when I first met them, uh, presented a, a, a position that, that I really, I understood where it came from in their minds, but, but I rejected it. Uh, and their position was to blame really all of Russia and the Russian people for supporting this war. And I said most average Russians uh, didn't know the reality of what Russia was doing or what was going on because the censorship was so crushing and the propaganda so effective. Um, but what are we, eight months in now, uh, it's no longer a plausible argument on my part. Uh, there are far too many Russian soldiers who have come back in boxes uh, and uh, exponentially more soldiers who have come back uh, wounded, missing limbs, uh, or able to tell the stories of what they've seen. And we hear over and over again uh, recordings of intercepted phone calls from soldiers to their loved ones describing the the awful situation on the ground uh, and the indefensibility of, of what Russia's doing and, and how its military is, is conducting this, this uh, war on Ukraine. Uh, so I no longer find it plausible that the Russian population at large is unaware of, A, that Russia's at war in Ukraine for no apparent reason, uh, B, that Russia's um, handling of that war on their own end is incurring massive losses, but more to the point that Russians are inflicting uh, unspeakable war crimes on Ukrainians across the entire country of Ukraine. The Russian people enough are aware of this in all of the major cities across the entire country. And yet uh, you hear and see nothing uh, opposing this. Uh, so uh, what it will take for to end the war is Russia uh, and by that now, I mean the Russian people. Uh, and and it is just crushingly sad that there isn't even a whisper uh, of any such effort uh, among the Russian people. Because a mass effort would succeed, right? A couple thousand people here, a couple thousand people there. Uh, Putin can have them all arrested and sent to hard labor. Uh, but a couple hundred thousand people here and a couple hundred thousand people there, he can't do that. But there's no sign of this happening. Do you think that, like we saw in China, where the protests erupted after this seemingly smallish fire in a residential building, and that was just the push that the people needed, is there going to, are we going to wait for something like that to occur in Russia? Because it sounds it like when I hear you describing the situation, it sounds like a house of cards. Yeah, I mean, it, it's going to require, unfortunately, something like uh, what happened, you know, in, in during the Arab Spring when there was all that hope. Now, many of those countries of, like Egypt have fallen back to dictatorship, uh, but not all of them. Uh, some are, uh, have more open and, and representative governments like Tunisia. Um, uh, but it's going to to overthrow a dictator like Putin is going to require mass and sustained protests in the major uh, in Moscow and in the provincial capitals around the country. Um, and, uh, you know, sadly, like I said, there, there's no sign of that happening. Um, but it doesn't seem like 
anything. It's not going to be a top-down change. It's going to have to be from the bottom. Uh, and but, that's but would we expect to see any pandemic. signs? I mean, isn't this the sort of thing sure. where it's all of a sudden you wake up one morning and there are hundreds of thousands of people in the street and you're like, huh, okay, that happened. He just called up a couple months ago, 300,000 reservists, people who are between the ages of 30 and 60 uh, who haven't been in military service for decades, uh, who have mortgages and jobs and kids and uh, and no training. And then he's sending them out with no training to the front lines to be cannon fodder. Uh, if that's not a spark, what is uh, for some kind of a, uh, an uprising? Yeah. Um, and I, I and and then you know a lot just a flight the the exodus of uh, of people from the country um, should also is, is you add all these things together the Russian people are aware of what that something is terribly wrong they have to be um, but but apparently they're either okay with that or or there's such blinders on that that there's some kind of collective refusal to be aware. I don't really have an explanation for it. And I'm not on the ground, obviously there. Um, but, um, but it's really discouraging. Um, because I would have thought that given the way things have gone, particularly that just the, the incessant reports of, of war crimes everywhere being committed by Russians, uh, that, 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 that would, um, you know, bring some kind of a backlash. There's an educated population um, with much exposure to the West over the last 20 years. Um, it's it's just really hard to hard to understand. Professor Ostro, it is always a pleasure. The hour passes so fast when we're talking. Thank you, thank you, thank you for sharing your afternoon with us. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Joe. And it's always uh, always wonderful talking with you. That's going to do it for me today. Driving it home with Patty Vasquez is up next. I will see you tomorrow at 2 o'clock. Have a great evening. Good night.